Welcome, listeners, to a very spooky special episode of Fireside Fairy Tales. This time, narrator Chell, that's me, is going to discuss seven tales of spookum. So we're going to be hearing some tales that feature maybe a little bit of gore, murder is definitely on the table, witchcraft, spellcraft, death, destruction, mayhem, all the fun spirited tropes that we find around this time of year, whether you celebrate Halloween or Samhain or either All Hallows Eve, Feast of All Saints, whatever. Let's just get into it. First up is the Slavic witch of yore, Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga originated from the folklore of Eastern Slavic peoples and is still known in Eastern Europe and Western Russia to this day. She is kind of known all around the world because of how prevalent Baba Yaga has become in media across the globe. She's first mentioned in written word in a 1755 Russian grammar book, but is thought to have existed in the, in the oral tradition of Slavic folktales much, much earlier than that. Baba Yaga is usually a tall and lanky and gaunt witch, possibly with skeleton legs and an iron nose. Sometimes she is also featured with iron teeth, in which to break the bones of the children she may or may not feast upon. There are theories that Baba Yaga once began as a pagan goddess, for she is associated with the earth and elements such as wind and storms. And in some tales, Baba Yaga is not one, but three. Just as famous as Baba Yaga herself is the witch's dwelling. Sometimes a mansion, but most often a hut It sits most commonly on chicken legs, and the hut is constantly spinning. Or, alternatively, the chicken legs are just constantly dancing. The hut is located deep in the forest, with her property surrounded by a fence made of human bones. To stop the house from spinning, and in some stories in order to to appear before the Yaga herself, a little chant must be said. You can hear a version of this in season two of The Witcher, as the deathless mother is based on Baba Yaga. Her hut is likely based on the common practices of the Uralic and and Tungusic invented to preserve supplies against animals during long periods of absence. A doorless and windowless log cabin is built upon supports made from the stumps of two or three or even four closely grown trees, cut to the height of eight to ten feet. The stumps, with their spreading roots, give a good impression of chicken legs. The only access into the cabin is via a trapdoor in the middle of the floor. And you can absolutely see photos of this and sketches online. For transportation, Baba Yaga uses a mortar and a pestle as her oar and possesses a silver-handled birch broom to sweep away her tracks so no one can follow her. Okay, there are literally thousands of Baba Yaga stories, most of which she is just a guest star. I'm going to be retelling the most famous of these tales. By his first wife, a merchant had a single daughter who was known as Vasilisa the Beautiful. When the girl was eight years old, her mother died. When it became clear that she was dying, 
she called Vasilisa to her bedside, where she gave her daughter a tiny wooden one-of-a-kind doll talisman with explicit instructions. Vasilisa must always keep the doll somewhere on her person and never allow anyone, not even her father, to see it or even know of its existence. Whenever Vasilisa should find herself in need of help, whenever overcoming evil, obstacles, or just be in need of advice or just some comfort, all that she needs to do is offer the doll a little to eat and a little to drink, and then whatever Vasilisa needs, it would help her. Once her mother had died, Vasilisa offered it a little drink and a little to eat, and it comforted her in her time of grief. After the mourning period, Vasilisa's father, in need of a mother for Vasilisa and to keep house, decided he needed to remarry. For his new wife, he chose a widow with two daughters of her own from her previous marriage, thinking that she would make the perfect new mother figure for his daughter. However, Vasilisa's stepmother, when not in the presence of her new husband, was very cruel to her, as were Vasilisa's stepsisters. But with the help of the doll, Vasilisa was always able to perform all of the household tasks imposed upon her. When Vasilisa came of age and young men came trying to woo her, the stepmother rejected them all on the pretense that it was not proper for younger girls to marry before the older girls, and none of the suitors wished to marry Vasilisa's stepsisters. One day, the merchant had to embark on an extended journey out of town for business. His wife, seeing an opportunity to dispose of Vasilisa, sold the house on the same day he left and moved them all away to a gloomy hut by a forest where rumors said that Baba Yaga resided. When not overworking Vasilisa with housework, the stepmother would also send her out deep into the woods on superfluous errands with the intentions of either marring her stepdaughter's enduring beauty or increasing the chances of Baba Yaga discovering her and eating her keeping the stepmother's hands clean of any perceived culpability. Only thanks to the doll was Vasilisa able to keep completing the scores of housework and remain safe whenever out of the house, always returning unharmed. The stepmother, only becoming frustrated with how her stepdaughter's continued luck, not only in remaining alive, but also in how Vasilisa's beauty continued to grow, decided to change tactics. One night, before bed, she gave each of the girls a task and put out all the fires except a single candle. Her older daughter then put out the candle, as instructed by her mother, whereupon the stepsisters bodily forced Vasilisa out of the house and demanded that she go fetch light from Baba Yaga's hut. The doll advised her to go, and she went. While she was walking, a mysterious man rode by her in the hours before dawn, dressed all in white riding a white horse whose equipment was all white. At noon, a similar rider, all in red, upon a red stallion, came by her. She then came to a house that stood on chicken legs and was walled by a fence made of human bones. A black rider, like the white and the red riders, rode past her, and night soon fell, whereupon the eye sockets of the skulls began to glow like lanterns. Vasilisa was too frightened to run away, and so Baba Yaga found her when she arrived in her giant flying mortar. Once she learned why the girl was there, Baba Yaga said that Vasilisa must perform tasks to earn the fire, or be killed. She was to clean the house and yard, wash Baba Yaga's laundry, and cook her a meal enough for a dozen, which Baba Yaga eats all by herself. 
she was also required to separate grains of rotten corn from sound corn and separate poppy seeds from grains of soil. Baba Yaga left the hut for the day and Vasilisa despaired as she worked herself into exhaustion. When all hope of completing the task seemed lost, Vasilisa turned to her doll and gave her a little bit to eat and a little bit to drink. The doll whispered that she would complete the tasks for Vasilisa and that the girl should sleep. At dawn, the white rider passed. At noon, the red. And as the black rider rode past, Baba Yaga returned and could complain of nothing. She bade three pairs of disembodied hands seize the corn to squeeze the oil from it and then asked Vasilisa if she had any questions. Vasilisa asked about the rider's identities and was told that the white one was day and the red one was noon and the black one night. But when Vasilisa thought of asking about the disembodied hands, the doll quivered in her pocket. Vasilisa realized she should not ask and told Baba Yaga she had no further questions. In return, Baba Yaga inquired as to the cause of Vasilisa's success. On hearing the answer, by my mother's blessing, Baba Yaga, who wanted nobody with any kind of blessing in her presence, threw Vasilisa out of her house and sent her home with a skull lantern full of burning coals to provide light for her stepfamily. Upon her return, Vasilisa found that since sending her out on her task, her stepfamily had been unable to light any candles or fire in their home. Even lamps and candles that might be brought in from outside were useless for the purpose, as all were snuffed out the second they were carried over the threshold. When Vasilisa held up the skull lantern, fire shot out of its eye sockets, burning the stepmother and stepsisters to ashes, but leaving Vasilisa unharmed. Vasilisa buried the skull according to its instructions, so no person would ever be harmed by it again. Soon thereafter, Vasilisa became an apprentice to a textile artist, where she became so skilled at her work that the Tsar himself noticed her talent and was so impressed that he later married her. The end. So Baba Yaga, while always remaining a threat, very rarely enacts that upon innocence. She's usually a trickster or an entity which helps the pure of heart, but punishes the wicked. Our second tale begins with scholar and folklorist Jack Zipes, who translated and published the original edition of the Grimm's Brothers Tales, which included 40 to 50 tales that would be erased or severely revised over the course of several republications. This was done to appease sentimental Christianity and puritanical ideology of the middle class. Among the first to get the axe from this first edition is the short but gruesome tale, How Some Children Played at Slaughtering. The first variant of this tale goes thusly. In a city named Frenneker, located in West Friesland, a group of young children around five to six years of age once played at being a butcher, a cook, a cook's assistant, etc., and killed the child who played as the pig. The child who played as the butcher was arrested and charged for murder, but the town council, which also functioned as a court, never having seen such a case before it, was unsure whether to punish such a young child. An old wise counselor finally came up with a special method to decide if the child was guilty or not. 
he brought a ripe, appetizing apple and a high-value gold coin, took one in each hand and let the child choose one of them. If the butcher chose the apple, then he was innocent and would be free to go. If he chose the gold coin, the child was guilty and would be hanged for murder. The butcher chose the apple without any hesitation. Therefore, he was released and all charges were dropped. The second variant is even shorter. One day, two brothers saw their father killing off a pig. They imitated what they saw and the older brother killed his younger brother. Their mother, who was giving the baby a bath, heard her child scream and abandoned the baby in the bath. When she saw what her eldest child had done, she took the knife out of her younger son's throat and in her rage stabbed her older son in the heart. When the mother found out that meanwhile the baby had drowned in the tub, she felt an inconsolable desperation and committed suicide by hanging herself. After a long day of work in the field, the father came home. Upon discovering that his whole family was dead, he soon also died from sadness. The end. Now, wasn't that such a pleasant little gruesome tale? Next up, we have The Artisan's Ride, based on a Russian ghost story found in Russian fairy tales by W.R.S. Ralston. Late one evening, a certain artisan happened to be returning home from a jovial feast in a distant village. There met him on the way an old friend, one who had been dead some ten years. Good health to you, said the dead man. I wish you good health, replied the reveler, and straightway forgot that his acquaintance had ever so long ago bidden the world farewell. Let's go to my house. We'll quaff a cup or two once more. Come along. On such a happy occasion as this meeting of ours, we may as well have a drink. They arrived at a dwelling, and there they drank and reveled. Now then, said the artisan, goodbye. It's time for me to go home. Stay a bit, said his friend. Where do you want to go now? Spend the night here with me. No, brother, do not ask me. It cannot be. I have business to do tomorrow, so I must get home as early as possible. Well, goodbye. But why should you walk? Better get on my horse. It will carry you home quickly. Thank you. Let's have at it. The artisan got on the horse's back and was carried off, just as a whirlwind flies. All of a sudden, the rooster crowed and the sun rose, and what a sight beheld him. All around the artisan were graves, and the writer found he had a gravestone under him. The end. I really like that one. I feel like that one has very big, scary stories to tell the dark energy. Like, it's short, it's to the point, it's a little funny, it's a little spooky. It hits that sweet spookum spot, you know? At least for me. I'm a big fan of creepy but kind of funny tale, so I felt very compelled to include it. Our fourth tale is a German fairy tale collected by the Brothers Grimm. It's tale number 40, The Robber Bridegroom. Now I went through many iterations of this because uh, it's a fairly common motif. However, I really enjoy this variant the best. Once upon a time, there was a miller who had a beautiful daughter. When she came of age, he wished that she was provided for and well married. He thought, if a respectable suitor comes and asks for her hand in marriage, I will give her to him. Not long afterward, a suitor came who appeared to be very rich. And because the miller could find no fault with him, he promised his daughter to him. 
The girl, however, did not like him as much as, as a bride should like her bridegroom. She did not trust him, and whenever she saw him or thought about him, she felt within her heart a sense of horror. One time he said to her, You are engaged to marry me, but you have never once paid me a visit. The girl replied, I don't know where your house is. Then the bridegroom said, My house is out in the dark woods. That's not creepy at all. Looking for an excuse, she said that she would not be able to find her way there. The bridegroom said, Next Sunday you must come out to me. I have already invited guests. I will make a trail of ashes so that you can find your way through the woods. When Sunday came and it was time for the girl to start on her way, she became frightened, although she herself did not know exactly why. In order to mark the path, she filled both her pockets full of peas and lentils. At the entrance of the forest, there was a trail of ashes, which she followed, but at every step she threw a couple of peas to the ground, to the right and to the left. She walked almost the whole day until she came to the middle of the woods, where it was the darkest, and there stood a solitary house. She did not like it, because it looked so dark and so sinister. Still, she went inside, but no one was there. It was totally quiet. Suddenly, a voice called out, Turn back, turn back, you young bride. You are in a murderer's house. The girl looked up and saw that the voice came from a bird, which was hanging in a cage on the wall. It cried out again, Turn back, turn back, you young bride. You are in a murderer's house. Then the beautiful bride went from one room to another, walking through the whole house, but it was entirely empty and not a human soul was to be found. Finally, she came to the cellar. A very old woman was sitting there shaking her head. Could you tell me, said the girl, if my bridegroom lives here? Oh, you poor child, replied the old woman. Where did you come from? You are in a murderer's den. You think you are a bride soon to be married, but it is death that you will be marrying. Look, they made me put a large kettle of water on the fire. When they have captured you, they will chop you to pieces without mercy, cook you, and eat you, for they are cannibals. If I do not show you compassion and save you, you are doomed. With this, the old woman led her behind a large barrel where she could not be seen. Be quiet as a mouse, she warned the girl. Do not make a sound or move, or all will be over with you. Tonight, when the robbers are asleep, we will escape. I have long waited for an opportunity. This had scarcely happened when the godless band came home. They were dragging with them another maiden. They were drunk and paid no attention to her screams and sobs. They gave her wine to drink, three glasses full, one glass of white, one glass of red, and one glass of yellow, which caused her heart to break. Then they ripped off her fine clothes, laid her on a table, chopped her beautiful body in pieces, and sprinkled salt on it. The poor bride behind the barrel trembled and shook, for she saw well what fate the robbers had planned for her. One of them noticed a gold ring on the murdered girl's little finger. Because it did not come off easily, he took an axe and chopped the finger off, but it flew into the air and over the barrel, falling right into the bride's lap. The robber took a light and looked for it, but could not find it. Then another one said, Did you look behind the large barrel? 
But the old woman cried out, come and eat. You can continue looking in the morning. That finger won't run away from you. The robbers said, the old woman is right. They gave up their search and sat down to eat. The old woman poured a sleeping potion into their wine so that they soon lay down in the cellar and fell asleep snoring. When the bride heard them snoring, she came out from behind the barrel and had to step over the sleepers, for they lay all in rows on the ground. She was afraid that she might awaken one of them, but God helped her and she got through safely. The old woman went upstairs with her, opened the door, and they hurried out of the murderer's den as fast as they could. The wind had blown away the trails of ashes, but the peas and lentils had sprouted and grown up and showed them the way in the moonlight. They walked all night, arriving at the mill the next morning. Then the girl told her father everything, just as it had happened. When the wedding day came, the bridegroom appeared. The miller had invited all his relatives and acquaintances. As they sat at the table, each one was asked to tell a story. The bride sat still and said nothing. Then the bridegroom said to the bride, Come, sweetheart, don't you know any tales? Tell us something, like the others have done. She answered, I have no stories to tell, but I shall tell about a dream. I was walking alone through the woods when finally I came to a house. Inside there was not a single human soul, but on the wall there was a bird in a cage. It cried out, Turn back, turn back, you young bride. You are in a murderer's house. Then it cried out the same thing again. The bridegroom laughed nervously. <laughs> Darling, it was only a dream. But she continued on. Then I went through all the rooms. They were all empty and there was something so eerie in there. Finally, I went down into the cellar and there sat a very old woman shaking her head. I asked her, does my bridegroom live in this house? She answered, Alas, poor child, you have gotten into a murderer's den. Your bridegroom does live here, but he intends to chop you to pieces and kill you. And then he intends to cook you and eat you. And darling, it was only a dream, said the bridegroom, shuffling his feet nervously. And still his bride went on. After that, the old woman hid me in, behind a large barrel. I had scarcely hidden myself there when the robbers came home, dragging a girl with them. They gave her three kinds of wine to drink, white, red, and yellow, which caused her heart to stop beating. Darling, darling, said the bridegroom, sweating profusely. It was only a dream. But the bride continued. After that, they took off her fine clothes and chopped her beautiful body to pieces on a table and then sprinkled salt on it. Then one of the robbers saw that there was still a ring on her ring finger. Because it was hard to get the ring off, he took an axe and chopped off the finger. The finger flew through the air behind the large barrel and fell into my lap. And here is the finger with the ring. With these words, she pulled out the finger and showed it to everyone who was there. The robber, who had during the story become as white as chalk, jumped up and tried to escape. But the guest held him fast and turned him over to the courts. Then he and his whole band were executed for their shameful deeds. The end. That one harkens a lot to Bluebeard's wife going in places where one not ought to. The reason why I prefer this tale 
as opposed to let's say Bluebeard's is because in Bluebeard's Wife, the wife or the new bride is typically shamed. It's a very Pandora's box kind of tale where the woman is explicitly told not to go somewhere and not to look in somewhere and she does it anyway and she's murdered. There seems to be like this curiosity killed the cat sort of sort of lesson. I say lesson very loosely. Whereas this one, she didn't want to go. Like her instinct told her that this was a bad guy and her father wouldn't listen to her. Um, he just wanted to marry her off and see her settled. And even despite her misgivings, she went to the house and, you know, teamed up with uh, like an older, wiser woman. And together through their industriousness, they were able to not only escape, but bring the robber and his band to justice. Our next tale also features cannibalism. So if you're into that sort of thing, stay tuned. <laughs> this tale is the Juniper Tree. It's the ATU type 720, my mother slew me, my father ate me. Isn't that vivid? My mother slew me and my father ate me is probably one of the best named ones. It's, I mean, it's very apt, it's very descriptive. It is very like dead dove, do not eat. You know, like you know what you're in for. It's not going to surprise you. So this is a German folktale collected by painter Philip Otto Runge, or Runge, who in 1806 sent it in a letter to Johann Georg Zimmer, the editor of Achim von Arnim. Ugh. Achim von Arnim's Des Nabin Wunderhorn. I don't know. It was a literary magazine. The letter ended up being read by the Brothers Grimm, who included it on their in their first volume of their collected Children and Household Tales, first edition, first published in 1812. I do not know if the Juniper Tree was in subsequent editions, though, considering the graphic nature of the tale. Long ago, there was a rich man who had a beautiful and pious wife, and they loved each other dearly. However, they had no children, though they wished very much to have some, and the woman prayed for them day and night, but they didn't get any, and they didn't get any. In front of their house, there was a courtyard where there stood a juniper tree. One day in winter, the woman was standing beneath it, peeling herself an apple, and while she was thus peeling the apple, she cut her finger and the blood fell into the snow. Oh, said the woman, she sighed heavily and looked at the blood before her. If only I had a child as red as blood and as white as snow. And as she said that, she became quite contented and felt sure that it was going to happen. Then she went into the house and a month went by and the snow was gone. And two months and everything was green. And three months and all the flowers came out of the earth. And four months and all the trees in the woods grew thicker and the green branches were all entwined in one another and the birds sang until the woods resounded and the blossoms fell from the trees. Then the fifth month passed, and she stood beneath the juniper tree, which smelled so sweet that her heart jumped for joy, and she fell on her knees and was beside herself. And when the sixth month was over, the fruit was thick and large, and she was quite still. And after the seventh month, she picked the juniper berries and ate them greedily. Then she grew sick and sorrowful. Then the eight month passed and she called her husband to her and cried and said, if I die, then bury me beneath the juniper tree. Then she was quite comforted and happy until the next month. And then she had a child as white as snow and as red as blood. 
and when she saw it, she was so happy that she died. Her husband buried her beneath the juniper tree, and he began to cry bitterly. After some time, he was more at ease, and although he still cried, he could bear it. And some time later, he took another wife. He had a daughter by a second wife, but the first wife's child was a little son. When the woman looked at her daughter, she loved her very much, but then she looked at the little boy and it pierced her heart, for she thought that he would always stand in her way and that she was always thinking how she could get the entire inheritance for her daughter. And the devil filled her mind with this until she grew very angry with the little boy and she pushed him from one corner to the other and slapped him here and cuffed him there until the poor child was always afraid. For when he came home from school, there was nowhere he could find any peace. One day, the woman had gone upstairs to her room when the little daughter came up too and said, Mother, may I have an apple? Yes, my child, said the woman and gave her a beautiful apple out of the chest. The chest had a large, heavy lid with a large, sharp iron lock. Mother, said the little daughter, is brother not to have one too? This made the woman angry, but she said, yes, when he comes home from school. When from the window she saw him coming, it was as though the devil came over her, and she grabbed the apple and took it away from her daughter, saying, you shall not have one before your brother. She threw the apple into the chest and shut it. Then the little boy came in the door, and stepmother said to him kindly, my son, do you want an apple? Yes, said the little boy, I shall. Then it seemed to her as if she had to persuade him. Come with me, she said, opening the lid of the chest. Take out an apple for yourself. And while the little boy was leaning over, crash! She slammed down the lid and his head, and his head flew off, falling among the red apples. Then fear overcame her, and she thought, oh, maybe I can get out of this. So she went upstairs to her room and to her chest of drawers and took a white scarf out of the top drawer and set the head on the neck again, tying the scarf around it so that nothing could be seen. Then she set him on a chair in the front of the door and put an apple in his hand. After this, her daughter Marlene came into the kitchen to her mother, who was standing by the fire with a pot of hot water before her, which she was stirring around and around. Mother, said Marlene, brother is sitting at the door and he looks totally white and has an apple in his hand. I asked him to give me the apple, but he did not answer me and I was very frightened. Go back to him, said the mother, and if he will not answer you, then box his ears. So Marlene went to him and said, brother, give me the apple. But he was silent, so she gave him one on the ear and his head fell off. Marlene was terrified and began crying and screaming and ran to her mother and said, Oh, mother, I have knocked my brother's head off. And she cried and cried and could not be comforted. Marlene, said the mother, what have you done? Be quiet and don't let anyone know about it. It cannot be helped now. We will cook him into stew. Then the mother took the little boy and chopped him in pieces, put him into the pot and cooked him into stew. But Marlene stood crying and crying and all her tears fell into the pot, and they did not need any salt. Then the father came home and sat down at the table and said, where is my son? And the mother served up a large dish of stew, though Marlene cried and could not stop. Then the father said again, where is my son? Oh, said the mother, he has gone across the country to his mother's great uncle. He will stay there a while. What is he doing there? He did not even say goodbye to me. 
Oh, he wanted to go, and he asked me if he could stay six weeks. He would be well taken care of there. Oh, said the man, I am unhappy. It isn't right. He should have said goodbye to me. With that, he began to eat, saying, Marlene, why are you crying? Your brother will certainly come back. Then he said, Wife, this food is delicious. Give me some more. And the more he ate, the more he wanted. And he said, Give me some more. You two shall have none of it. It seems to me as if it were all mine. And he ate and ate, throwing all the bones under the table until he had finished it all. Marlene went to her chest of drawers, took her best silk scarf from the bottom drawer and gathered all the bones from beneath the table and tied them up in her silk scarf, then carried them outside the doors, crying tears of blood. She laid them down beneath the juniper tree on the green grass, and after she put them there, she suddenly felt better and did not cry anymore. Then the juniper tree began to move. The branches moved apart. They moved together again, just as if someone were rejoicing and clapping his hands. At the same time, a mist seemed to rise from the tree, and in the center of this mist, it burned like fire, and a beautiful bird flew out of the fire, singing magnificently and it flew high into the air and when it was gone the juniper tree was just as it had been before and the cloth with the bones was no longer there marlene however was as happy and and contented as if her brother were still alive she merrily went back into the house then the bird flew away and lit on a goldsmith's house and it began to sing my mother she killed me my father he ate me my sister Marlene gathered all my bones, tied them in a silken scarf, lay them beneath the juniper tree. Tweet, tweet, what a beautiful bird am I. The goldsmith was sitting in his workshop making a golden chain. When he heard the bird sitting on his roof and singing, he went right up the middle in his leather apron, and in one hand he had a golden chain, and in the other his tongs. He walked onward, then stood still, and said to the bird, how beautifully you can sing. Sing that piece again for me. No, said the bird. I do not sing twice for nothing. Give me the golden chain, and then I will sing it again for you. The goldsmith said, Here is the gold chain for you. Now please sing that song again for me. Then the bird came and took the golden chain in its right claw and went and sat in front of the goldsmith and sang his song once more. Then the bird flew away to a shoemaker and lit on his roof and sang, My mother, she killed me. My father, he ate me. My sister Marlene gathered all my bones, tied them in a silken scarf, laid them beneath the juniper tree. Tweet, tweet, what a beautiful bird am I. Hearing this, the shoemaker ran out of doors in his shirt sleeves with a pair of red shoes he had just finished cobbling and looked up at his roof. Bird, he said, how beautifully you can sing. Sing that song again for me. No, said the bird, I do not sing twice for nothing. You must give me the red shoes in your hands. There, bird, said the man as he held up the shoes. Now sing that piece again for me. Then the bird came and took the shoes in his left claw and flew back to the roof and sang again for the shoemaker. When he had finished his song, he flew away. In his right claw he had the chain, and in his left one the shoes. He flew far away to a mill, where there sat twenty miller's apprentices, cutting stone and chiseling. Then the bird went and sat on a linden tree, which stood in front of the mill, and sang, My mother, she killed me, my father, he ate me, my sister Marlene gathered all my bones, tied them in a silken scarf, laid them beneath the juniper tree. Tweet, tweet, what a beautiful bird am I. 
all of the apprentices stopped their chiseling, stopped their cutting, all to listen to the bird, until the master miller said, Bird, how beautifully you sing. Let me hear that too. Sing it once more for us. No, said the bird, I do not sing twice for nothing. Give me the millstone and then I will sing it again. Uh, yes, absolutely. And he waved to his apprentices who took the beam and lifted the stone up. The bird struck his neck through the hole and put the stone on as if it were a collar, then flew to the tree again and sang again for the apprentices and the miller. When he was finished singing, he spread his wings and in his right claw he had the chain and in his left one the shoes and around his neck the millstone. He flew far away to his father's house. In the great room, the father, the mother, and Marlene were sitting at the table. The father said, I feel so contented. I am so happy. Not I, said the mother. I feel uneasy, just as if a bad storm were coming. And all Marlene could do was sit and cry. Then the bird flew up. As it has seated itself on the roof, the father said, Oh, I feel truly happy again. Like the sun is shining so beautifully outside. I, I feel as if I were about to see some old acquaintance again. Not I, said the woman. I am so afraid that my teeth are chattering and I feel like I have fire in my veins. And she tore open her bodice even more. Marlene sat in a corner crying. She held a handkerchief before her eyes and cried until it was wet. Then the bird seated itself on the juniper tree and sang, My mother, she killed me. The mother stopped her ears and shut her eyes, not wanting to see or hear, but there was a roaring in her ears like the fiercest storm, and her eyes burned and flashed like lightning. My father, he ate me. Oh, whiff, said the man. That is a beautiful bird. He is singing so splendidly, and the sun is shining so warmly, and it smells like pure cinnamon. My sister Marlene, then Marlene laid her head on her knees and cried and cried. But the man said, I am going out. I must see this bird up close. Oh, don't go, said the woman. I feel as if the whole house were shaking and I'm on fire. But the man went out and looked at the bird, who sang the rest of his song, gathered all my bones, tied them in a silken scarf, laid them beneath the juniper tree. Tweet, tweet, what a beautiful bird am I. With this, the bird dropped the golden chain and it fell right around the man's neck so excited around that it fit so beautifully. Then the man went in and said, just look what a beautiful bird that is and what a beautiful golden chain he has given me and how nice it looks. But the woman was terrified. Then the bird sang once more. My mother killed me, said the stepmother. I wish I were a thousand fathoms beneath the earth so I would not have to hear that. My father, he ate me. Then the woman fell down. My sister Marlene. Oh, said Marlene, I too will go out and see if the bird will give me something. Then she went out, gathered all my bones, tied them in a silken scarf. With that, the bird threw down the shoes to her, laid them beneath the juniper tree. Tweet, tweet, what a beautiful bird am I. Marlene was so contented and happy. She put on the new red shoes and danced and leapt into the house. Oh, she said, I was so sad when I went out and now I am so contented. That is a splendid bird. He has given me a pair of red shoes. No, said the woman jumping to her feet and with her hair standing up like flames of fire. I feel as if the world were coming to an end. I too will go out and see if it makes me feel better. And as she went out the door, crash, the bird threw the millstone on her head and it crushed her to death. The father and Marlene heard it and went out. 
Smoke, flames, and fire were rising from the place, and when that was over, the little brother was standing there, and he took his father and Marlene by the hand, and all three were very happy, and they went into the house, sat down at the table, and ate. The end. We have just two more tales, the first of which is The Hen is Tripping in the Mountain. It's a Norwegian folktale collected by Peter Christian Asbjornsen, 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 and Jorgen Mo, who were inspired by the Grimm brothers as a way of preserving Norwegian culture. While they wrote down retold tales rather than raw tales, their alterations were not as notably drastic as the Grimm's. Also unlike the Grimm brothers, they went out into the field and collected these tales from the people themselves. Fancy that. So this tale is found in the ATU index number 311. The heroine rescues herself and her sisters. An old widow had three daughters and only one hen for livestock. The hen had gone missing, and the widow she sent her eldest to find it, even if she had to go out in the hill above where they lived. After searching far and wide without success, the girl heard a voice call from a cleft in the rock. Your hen trips inside the hill. Your hen trips inside the hill. And when she investigated, she stepped on a trap door and fell underground. She went through a series of rooms, each room ever increasingly finer looking as she proceeded, until in the innermost chamber she encountered a hideous looking troll. The troll asked her to be his sweetheart, and when she declined, he angrily wrung her head off. The middle daughter was sent out to look for her sister and the hen, but met the same fate. The youngest daughter, too, fell down the chute, but prudently did some exploring, so that when she opened the hatch door to the cellar, she discovered her dead sisters inside. Since she deduced what befell her sisters, when asked by the troll to be his sweetheart, she pretended to agree wholeheartedly. Though she was furnished with fine clothing and anything else she desired, she proclaimed one day that she worried for her mother, who must be hungry and thirsty with no one else there to attend to her. The troll would not allow her to go home, but if wanted, she could fill a sack with food which he would carry to her mother. The youngest daughter stuffed the sack with gold and silver and put a little food on top to camouflage it. She forbade him to look inside along the way. After a while, his load felt so heavy he was tempted to look, but she shouted after him that she saw what he was doing. It so happened that a billy goat fell into the hill, and the troll wrung the head off the shaggy beast. When the youngest daughter complained that the animal could have kept her company, the troll took a crock from the wall, smeared its contents on the goat's wounds, and put the head back on the body, bringing it back to life. This gave the youngest sister an idea. The youngest sister then awaited opportunity, and when the troll was away from home, used the crock to restore life to her oldest sister. Concealing the revived sister inside the sack, camouflaged with food on top, the youngest told the troll to carry the sack again to her mother, making him promise to never peek inside. When the troll did try to sneak a look, he heard a voice shout, I see what you're at, prompting the baffled troll to answer, You've got one devil of a pair of eyes. The voice actually came from the sister he was carrying in the sack, but he mistook it for his sweetheart shouting. The youngest made the troll carry the middle sister in the same way, except it was a great deal heavier this time because she stuffed the sack with gold and silver as well. The youngest then devised a scheme to make her own get away. 
She gained more time by feigning sickness and telling him it was no use coming back until twelve midnight, because she will not have his dinner ready before then. Then she stuffed straw into her clothes and propped up a figure by the hearth, making the dummy look like it was holding a stirring stick in its hand. She then ran back home to her mother and had a sharpshooter to stay with them. The troll came back to his home and demanded his supper. When the strong woman did not answer, he struck and realized what had happened. Then he saw the bodies of her sisters were missing as well. Raging, he came after them, but the sharpshooter scared him off. He headed back for home, but just as he was about to go below ground, the sun rose and he shattered into bits. I really like that one because I like troll lore in the Scandinavian countries is very distinct. Maybe one day with narrator Elisa, we'll have a proper episode of Scandinavian trolls. So we're now at the seventh and final spookum story. And in honor of Halloween's ancient Celtic roots in Samhain, I would like to talk about one of my favorite creatures from Celtic mythology, the Dullahan. They are the OG of headless horse riders, a harbinger of woe and ill tidings. To see one of these phantoms means you or a loved one was not long for this world. In some legends, the head of the rider is tucked into the saddlebag or floating beside the Dullahan. Sometimes their horse can be headless as well. Why headless? The early Celts believed that the soul resided within the head itself, and decapitation was a common method of execution in both battle, law, and through martyrdom. In Fairy and Folktales of the Irish Peasantry, W.B. Yeats writes, quote, An omen that sometimes accompanies the banshees is the coach bower, an immense black coach mounted by a coffin and drawn by headless horses driven by a dullahan. It will go rumbling to your door, and if you open it, according to Croker, a basin of blood will be thrown in your face. Thus came into an existence the Dullahans. End quote. The croaker that Yeats mentions is Thomas Crofton Croker. Crocker? Crocker Croker. I don't know. C-R-O-K-E-R. That could be either. Thomas Crofton Croker, who wrote fairy legends and traditions of the south of Ireland. In one tale from Cork, a married man named Larry Dodd gives a young lady a ride to the churchyard, whereupon he attempts to kiss her and quickly learns that she is a Dullahan, going to a party of the dead. Larry is compelled to join them and even loses his own head for a while, but wakes up no worse for wear except for the scolding his wife gave him that morning. In this, the Dullahan serves as a warning to stay on the path of righteousness and do not give way to lustful thoughts or drunken behaviors. So I feel like maybe tales like this probably came in after Christianity took hold in Ireland, which would have been about the 5th century. In my final recitation, I'm going to read Thomas Crofton Croker's poem, The Death Coach. Tis midnight, how gloomy and dark, by Jupiter's there, not a star. Tis fearful, tis awful, and hark, what sound is that comes from afar? Still rolling and rumbling, that sound makes nearer and nearer approach. Do I tremble, or is it the ground? Lord save us, what is it? A coach. A coach, but that coach has no head, and the horses are headless as it. Of the driver the same may be said, and the passengers inside who sit. See the wheels, how they fly o'er the stones, and whirl as the whip it goes crack. 
Their spokes are of dead men's thigh bones, and the pole is the spine of the back. The hammer cloth, shabby display, is a pall rather mildewed by damps, and to light the strange coach on its way, two hollow skulls hang up for lamps. From the gloom of Rathcooney churchyard, they dash down the hill of Glenmire, past Loda and gallop as hard, as if horses were never to tire. With people thus headless tis fun to drive in such furious career, since headlong their horses can't run, nor coachmen be heady from beer. Very steep is the Tivoli lane, but uphill to them as is down, nor the charms of Woodhill can detain these Dullahans rushing to town. Could they feel it as I felt in a song, a spell that forbade them depart? They'd a lingering visit prolong, and after their head lose their heart. No matter, tis past twelve o'clock, through the streets they sweep on like the wind, and taking the road to Blackrock, Cork City is soon left behind. Should they hurry thus reckless along, to supper instead of to bed, the landlord will surely be wrong, if he charge it at so much ahead. Yet mine host may suppose them too poor, to bring to his wealth an increase. As till now, all who drove to this door possessed at least one crown apiece. Up the dead woman's hill they are rolled. Bury Manan is quite out of sight. Bali Temple they reach and behold. As its churchyard they stop and alight. Who's there? said a voice from the ground. We've no room, for the place is quite full. Oh, room must be speedily found, for we come from the parish of Skull. Though Murphys and Crowleys appear on headstones of deep-lettered pride, Though Scannels and Murrays lie here, Fitzgeralds and Toomeys beside. Yet here for the night we lie down, tomorrow we speed on the gale. For having no heads of our own, we seek the old head of Kinsale. I love this poem because I've been to a lot of these places. I've actually stayed in Cork uh, many times. I've been to Kinsale. I know Blackrock. I know Glanmire. Rathcooney, these are all places that I personally have been, gives me great meaning and pleasure to recite this poem for all of you. So this is Narrator Chell, and I hope that you have a very spookum Samhain and a very happy Halloween. Fare thee well, and blessed be. Talk fairy tales with us on anchor.fm slash once upon a rewatch. Tweet us at once upon rewatch. Participate in episodic polls on Instagram at Once Upon Rewatch. Follow us at Once Upon A Rewatch.tumblr.com. If you enjoy Once Upon a Rewatch, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your platform of choice. The artwork for our podcast was by Lychee Ruru. We want to say a very special thank you to the master of free music, Kevin McLeod. Our intro music is Frost Waltz, and our outro music is Fairy Tale Waltz. And remember, all plot devices come with a price.